to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's story is uh, one between the Taoist master Lao Tzu and his devoted student Yang Chu, and it takes place in the context of Yang Chu being the abbot of a temple and uh, leaves behind his temple duties in order to meet his uh, teacher uh, who's traveling back from a hermitage. And I hope you enjoy. Yang Chu was a devoted student of Lao Tzu, a Taoist master of Zen. Yang Chu was the abbot of Sun Moon Temple. One morning after breakfast, he received a message from a local merchant that Lao Tzu was on his way back to the temple and was traveling alone back from his remote hermitage. The temple was preparing for a large ceremony to honor the river gods, but Yang Chu was overcome with the desire to meet his teacher on the road. He decided to set out immediately on the long and arduous path by foot and meet his teacher about halfway back in order to help him the rest of his journey to the temple. There was a young novice nun living at the temple named Shi Jin. She was very hard-working and obedient. He called her to him and directed her to take care of the numerous temple duties and affairs in his absence. He then quickly left the temple and caught up with his teacher near the town of Ling. Lao Tzu, when he saw his disciple, however, simply stood in the middle of the road, looked up at the sky, and with a sigh remarked, I used to think you were teachable, but now I'm sensing that you aren't. Yang Chu didn't respond. His heart sank, and he was taken over by a full-bodied state of despair. He followed Lao Tzu several miles in the heat, in a state of total exhaustion, to a little inn. The next morning, he humbly approached him, saying, Master, earlier I wanted to ask you what you meant, why you have rejected me, but you walked on without providing me with an opportunity. I waited out of respect. Now that you are available, I venture to ask what I've been doing wrong. Lao Tzu said, You are arrogant and selfish. You hold back what you are capable of giving and rather spend time with those who can give to you. In addition, you go about your affairs mindlessly. Because you are intelligent, you rapidly complete tasks without giving them your true and sincere time. It would be forgivable if you do not have the potential to help many people transform their suffering. But because you are karmically fit to teach, I cannot hold back your true situation. How about the girl you have burdened with taking care of the numerous tasks of caretaking for the temple in your absence? You, however, preferred to meet your old master on the road Despite my being capable of handling my own affairs, this is because you desire my time and what you hope to glean from it, and do not truly consider the needs of those who sincerely need your time. Yang Chu then asked for Lao Tzu's instruction and put it into practice. After Yang Chu's transformation, Many people and students would go to great lengths just so they could sit by him.
and Shi Jin became his most devoted disciple. Well, Sindham, it's been a while since we've done a podcast, so it feels really good to be um, back reading stories with you. Um, I and, agree. Yeah, it seems um, I've noticed that the past uh, several months you've really been uh, exploring uh, the works of David Hinton and uh, the relationship um, between Taoism and, and Zen, or what's called Chan uh, in Chinese. So I thought this would this is a uh, really appropriate story um, for that. So thanks for reading it. Um, yeah, I, I I feel like the story, the lessons here, or the 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 teaching within it is pretty self is pretty explicit. But I wonder if you can um, you know share your thoughts on and the dynamic there between Yang, Yang Chu and Lao Tzu uh, seemed a, a pretty harsh way to teach. Well, I think that, you know, the Lao Tzu, it says right at the beginning, uh, is a Taoist master of Zen. So I think to people in the West, that might sound strange, a Taoist master of Zen. And so just briefly, when Buddhism uh, came to China, of course, by then Lao Tzu's teaching had been uh, centuries old. And there was something called dark enigma learning that was based on uh, uh, Lao Tzu and and uh, it was being expressed to the best of the ability by the intellectuals and the poets of the uh, early uh, period uh, common era. Lao Tzu's life was uh, before the common era. So what happened was that Buddhism came and what the intellectuals and the Taoist masters, now there were some like Lao Tzu, said uh, they liked the idea of uh, the word dhyana, that it will go very well with Taoism. And so Zen actually was created. And by dhyana you mean um, specifically dhyana for those who may not know, is a word that describes uh, meditation. Consciousness. Sitting uh, meditation. Well, it describes a consciousness empty of all content. That's the literal definition of dhyana. So that in and of itself has, of course, been practiced for years, but that wasn't enough because when it met dark enigma learning, it took it to a, another depth. That depth became Zen, yeah. Chan in China. Mm. So it's really the case that what we call Buddhism in America uh, is not what the ancient masters like Lao Tzu were talking about. They were talking about something much deeper. Buddhism, for the large part in this country, is been institutionalized. And that's a characteristic of Buddhism. The people that are investigating more deeply based on uh, this thing called dark enigma learning, which has uh, given a lot of names to uh, the power of the, the way to awakening. Doesn't matter what you call it, but the, so many people settled on just emptying their consciousness of all content that they didn't carry it to the next step. And it may be hard to bridge it right now. 
this is this is what stopped Yang Chu is that he had a very selfish mind about what he wanted. So that's interesting. I feel like what you're doing there, Sinem, is very interesting. You're drawing a parallel between a selfish mind and a mind that desires to be, um, uh, you described it as empty of all content. I think in the West we might call that, um, you know, sitting with no thought or sitting, you know, achieving peace or a state of bliss in our meditation practice. So that's what I'm hearing you say is that there's a parallel between someone who is sitting meditation with the idea of of feeling free or feeling feeling peaceful and Yang Chu uh, and his kind of uh, in a selfish mind. Yeah, hungry for that, so to speak. So there's a the commonality there is there's a hunger for something. Yeah, you're still wanting. Got it. That's That's, right. That's really subtle. That's really very subtle. Very interesting. Yeah. But it's again, it's what created this thing we're practicing. And unfortunately, uh, there's been a cultural appropriation uh, by the Japanese, uh, which is why we're calling what we do here Zen, when in effect it's actually uh, Sun in Korean and Chan in Chinese. But Chan and Sun are completely different than what Zen looks like here in this country. Because it, 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 it basically uh, functions, now, there are some exceptions, but it basically functions as simply attempting to empty consciousness of all content, which in a sense makes you available. The next step is for that consciousness to integrate with the cosmos itself. In other words, become the cosmos as your most clear identity. I'll talk about that uh, at at some of the uh, new moon and full moon Dharma talks. It's a really important uh, thing that we have to understand very clearly about where we come from. And once we understand that we're not simply sitting to empty our consciousness and then enjoy the peace that can come from that, which is temporary, then you go out and pretty soon you're wanting something, right? Because now you feel like you've got something by emptying your consciousness. But it's beyond getting even that empty consciousness. That's just a step in the true practice of of Zen, the way that the Chinese and the Koreans envisioned it. So I feel like you have taken us really far along the path and perhaps out of the realm that... um, you know, people could potentially grasp here. So I wonder if we could break some of this down in the context of the story. Um, Would that be all right? Sure. Okay. So what I I think could be new for people that are listening um, or uh, coming into, you know, hearing about the the world of Buddhism or Zen, uh, we have this practice called meditation. Um, Zen meditation or just meditation and um, I think the word that you used earlier dhyana could essentially be um, said in English as meditation dhyana there is is meditation and what we mean by meditation here is uh, the practice usually involves sitting down and taking a position of you know that is still uh, and then what you're saying here, you're, you're describing it as emptying the, that human being that sits down in stillness, then attempts through concentration to empty their mind of content. In other words, to become uh, fully open or fully, um, uh, fully at rest. It happens. You and don't it, have to make it happen. Right. It happens right. when you're not stuck on yourself. Right. But what I hear you saying is that that practice is a legitimate practice and that is uh, something that will happen eventually after someone will you know take their seat and uh, and attempt wholeheartedly to to meditate Um, but that that's that the state that you can achieve in meditation uh, which is a state of peace uh, is only the first step yes okay 
What's interesting to me in talking to you around this is that I think most people that I have encountered at the Zen Center here uh, never even get to that first state. You know, they're, most people ex, uh, express to me that when they attempt to meditate, their mind is so full and so, you know, habitually driven. You know, um, thoughts are sort of, you know, they never, thoughts are just ceaseless. They almost feel as if they are losing their mind because they're, they're so embroiled in thoughts and feelings and emotions. Uh, most people in the West report when they attempt to do meditation practice or what we're calling here dhyana, uh, that they really struggle right from the beginning with, begin- with letting go of their thoughts and feelings and, and achieving a state of peace. So I wonder if before we get to the, the part where we talk about moving beyond the state of peace, maybe it would be helpful to uh, conceptually understand how someone gets to that first state of peace. So someone walking in off the street to a Zen center shows up and says, you know, I'd like to learn how to meditate. And I think most people come with the idea that they want to have peace. You know, they want to be free from their suffering. I think suffering. it's fair to say that. Yeah, so then they... Free of suffering, I yeah. think, would be uh, Mental, even more important than peace because yeah. they, they know suffering, they don't know peace. Yeah, so then... Um, so they're way, be, way before the, the situation here with Yang Chu and his teacher Lao Tzu. Um, they're potentially more like Shijin, the young nun, uh, this who, would be like my teacher talking to me. Exactly. <laughs> Which he did. <laughs> so I guess what we could say is that this story, you know, this interaction between Lao Tzu and Yang Chu wouldn't happen with a, with a new student. Clearly this is a story that's illustrating a relationship between a teacher and a disciple where the disciple has achieved uh, a state of peace already in their practice. Well, I, I don't think that I agree with that mm. in this sense. Um, what we're talking about is uh, training. And practice comes after training. So in order to be properly trained at anything, you have to be corrected. And you have to be available to be corrected. So in a sense, your first koan is to make yourself available to be corrected. That means don't come with your own ideas about anything. Try it. See how it fits. Nobody's asking you to believe it because a teacher says it to you, but through your own experience. Your job is to focus on what you're doing whether you're in meditation, which is the primary uh, place that we begin. But it has to be carried the rest of the time. And so what are the characteristics of sitting in meditation? Well, you're pretty still. You're holding your body relatively still. And you're, uh, you, you're doing some something uh, that, that's been assigned to you. If you, as you said, when, when people initially come, you teach them about change. And so you ask them, you know that they're thinking because thinking goes on. Mm-hmm. It's a long, long road to what anyone could refer to as, you know, uh, no thought. Yeah. Right? So you have to learn to see your thoughts as something other than yourself. The same way that you see everything else in the world is something that isn't yourself, right? At this point, everything is changing, including your thoughts, including your memories, including your emotions. And we say, that can't be real. It's coming and going. Mm. Can you recognize that? You're already seeing your thoughts, and you, what are you saying? They just keep coming, right. and they just keep going. That's right. right? Yeah. So that that essentially is what you have to come to grips with, that you can see that I am not my thought. The real I 
is not the I that I take to be the I. It's something much deeper than that, and I don't know what that is. But when my teacher tells me that my thoughts and my memories and my emotions are just like everything else, they're coming and going. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Right. Something isn't. And we call that something dark enigma learning. It's beyond understanding. It's not a question of understanding or not understanding. It's just direct experience with reality. So you have to be available for that. The very fact that Hyang Chu took that criticism very seriously as it concludes the story and became, it's implied, a great teacher that was followed at least by the very woman that he left in charge yeah. because uh, he had really grasped that teaching, that this wasn't about him. This was about what he could give. Mm. Right. So again, now I'll come back to sitting in meditation. Like, you're not there to get peace. You're not there to get emptiness. You're there just to do what you're doing, to completely embrace the sitting there the, the, the experience of everything coming and going. Eventually, you're, you, you, you can look toward your breath, your breath, which is doing exactly the same thing. So, and all of this, we typically identify as ourselves. But that self that we identify with comes and goes too. Yeah. It starts with our breath and it ends with our breath. Everybody's life is the same in that regard. Right? So if you want to live that life... It's not against the rules, but you're never going to be satisfied, right? That's the teaching. Even thinking that you have achieved something always reflects a smell that we don't like in Zen. There is no such thing as achievement or not achievement. This is truly beyond the beyond. It's not, you can't put it into words. That's why all Lao Tzu did is pointed out the mistake. And the student, recognizing he didn't know what the mistake was, asked about it the next morning. And he told him, you're selfish. And this is what you did. And he could have said, this is not my teaching. Hmm. I think that's a common characteristic in the West that we come, I came wanting something, but when you find out that that wanting mind is just part of a self-identity that's, that's spoiling the experience of being in this wonderful, wonderful world. Mm. And all we do all our lives is point to all the bad things that are going on. Yes, there are bad things going on. There are wonderful things going on. But all of them have one characteristic. They come and go. Yeah. What doesn't? Yeah. Very interesting. Well, I... I wonder if you have any thoughts on, you know, there are three characters in the story. There is Lao Tzu and Yang Chu, and then in the background we have Shi Jin, the young novice who seemed uh, quite willing, at least it's implied in the story, obedient, hardworking. Eager. Eager to take the instruction of Yang Chu and to take up the responsibilities at the temple in his absence. And... It's interesting that, that Lao Tzu was, seemed to be more focused, or seemed to be very focused on her well-being um, and was attempting to point Yang Chu back, um, in a sense, humbling Yang Chu. I can really relate to the mind, you know, thinking, oh, my teacher is, you know, coming back from a long journey, he's elderly, he must need my help. And so, in a sense, that sort of justifies, you know, putting all the responsibilities on the young people who could, you know, have the energy and the ability to take care of things. 
and then you go out on the road to, to meet your teacher. Um, but clearly what Lao Tzu saw here was something in Yang Chu that wasn't that pure. He was after something. And that it seems to me that that would be a highly intuitive call and uh, almost irrational, um, but really speaks to my own experience within Zen and the, you know, and you as my teacher and other teachers that I've encountered, um, they often teach in a way that does not make any sense. And I could easily argue with or say, well, you know, you just, in a sense, um, you can have the idea that they don't know what they're talking about. They just don't have the full picture. But upon reflection, um, you know, often those teachings are speaking to a much deeper, much more subtle uh, sort of uh, uh, um, kind of desire within me that is uh, truly is not uh, in line with um, uh, uh, experiencing myself as one with everything. You know, I still am sort of viewing myself as a, as a separate thing. Well, I think we have to, in the context is this, that Lao Tzu is clearly a master. Yeah. And this is an abbot. Yeah. And he's got certain responsibilities that he was taught by Lao Tzu, presumably. And now the question became to him, are my responsibilities here to take care of others, including Xi Jin, less important than going and, and helping my master? And why am I going right. to help my master? That's Is that right. truly about my master? Right. Like it didn't say that he was elderly or, right. or incapable. In fact, he said himself, I was fully capable. Right. I mean, he had already come halfway back. Right. So I think that the interesting thing to me is that we we weren't there, but clearly he took the message and changed. And Xi Jin recognized that. Yeah. So in a sense, you could just see how things evolve, that eventually Yang Chu becomes the master, and Xi Jin becomes an abbot as well. Right. And the process goes on right. as other uh, Xi Jins are people appear right so it's it is a process it's a process that doesn't end until it uh, until as a human being your ability with what you can do uh, humanly to help others to take care of you know a temple or your own house or whatever it is that clearly comes to an end because mm. it's always changing so in a sense it's a temporary opportunity Right? So you have to see very clearly what your responsibility is in each situation that you're in. So Xi Jin clearly, she answered to the abbot, you want me to do that? Okay. <laughs> right. But the abbot was responding to uh, wanting even more than he'd already been given by Lao Tzu. Right. And Lao Tzu pointed that out to him. Right. Which I think is was really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I'm having trouble tying that back to the you know, very profound uh, teachings you were sharing, you know, just a minute ago. Um, and I think it's important to uh, uh, to try to un unwrap some of that. I, I I think it's it's pretty clear cut in what you are expressing here with the story around the teaching that Lao Tzu is giving his his disciple, the abbot Yangchu. And uh, and how that um, how that all went down, I think, in my own mind, I'm having difficulty relating that to uh, your expressing um, the importance of moving beyond a state of, of peace and well, uh, yeah and oneness, the practice La of oneness. The reason Lao Tzu and presumably Yang Chu is maybe his most senior disciple. What allowed him to say that to somebody that had clearly done a lot of work up to that point to be elevated to the abbot was something not understandable to a, a human being, a human consciousness. Right. And he literally did what was necessary in that situation with no thought of 
this disciple is going to run away from me or turn right. their back on me or hate me or start a big thing with me. Right. He became docile. He followed his teacher. He waited for the appropriate opportunity. Right. And then he asked for the teaching that he had just received. Now, he'd had, I don't know what, 8, 10, 12 hours to mull with that. Right. He's clearly troubled to go to the teacher in the morning and then right over the head, just straight forward. So that's training. And that's what the story is illustrating. The kind of mind, not only that produces the training, but the kind of mind that, that takes and absorbs the training. Yeah. And you can't work it out in, you know, one, two, three, or A, B, C. It doesn't work that way. Lao Tzu was beyond any of that distinction between was this a good thing he did or a bad thing? No, no matter. It was just the right thing at the right moment. And, and anyone could see that, including Yang Chu. Mm. That's what we call the, 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 the brilliance of, of, of the great teaching that's you know, shared by uh, uh, now several different cultures. How do you think it is that Lao Tzu was able to see so clearly what Yang Chu was not able to see? Well, he had nothing in his way. What was in Yang Chu's way? The desire to be with his teacher at a time that it wasn't appropriate. And how, you know, short of having uh, a teacher in your life to point those things out to you, what mechanism are we able to develop through spiritual practice like meditation practice that can you know, kind of function in that way for within our, our own minds? In other words, how do we come to be able to see ourselves in the same way that our, our teacher can see us? Well, no one can say that it can't be done, right? But I guess here's an abbot that's making, from Lao Tzu's point of view, an egregious mistake. So clearly what? He couldn't see his mind. Right. That's why he had a teacher. Right. So we can't say everybody needs a teacher, but I, for one, can't speak as someone that didn't have one. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. it's really hard to think about, oh, I'll just do it myself. Because right. then we ask, the person that's doing it themselves is, is basically following their, their self-identity. Right. And they will eventually do just what they want. It's like when somebody comes to you and said, you know, I meditated last night at home. It was wonderful. So what? Right? What? Of course, meditation is wonderful, but walking in the park is wonderful. Making love with your wife or girlfriend is. There are all kinds of wonderful things, yeah. but wonderful things are not training. Right. Training is facing the music of what you've created called a self identity, right. or in our parlance, ego. Well, that's interesting, Sunim. I think what I'm hearing. There is, I'd like to, to open up. So, yeah, I mean, one of the basic tenets of Buddhism is that to be, a, to be alive, to be an individual being, you know, a human being, so you're referring to that as having an identity center. So, you know, if you look in the mirror and you see some, you know, a human being staring back at you, that's you. An individual consciousness. You're an individual consciousness. Everyone knows they have a consciousness. Yeah, and that's an inherent problem because that that you know being an individual person, uh, in a sense, requires you to figure out how to how to you know make that separated individual something that is not part of everything else, something that is very much inherently separated from everything else. How to make that thing happy, sort of becomes, uh, you know your entire life becomes devoted to that 
once you, you know, get to become, you know, say the age of a teenager and you realize that you are an individual. And I think Buddhism is very interesting in that it kind of points out the obvious, you know, saying, you know, to, to be a human individual is to suffer. And by suffering here, it isn't necessarily this, you know, um, uh, uh, always this, you know, uh, intense type of suffering, but this perpetual feeling that that you're, you know, that you're always kind of, you know, um, seeking, seeking, needing something more, needing to to be complete. Exactly. And that that's a condition that, you know, it is. You are incomplete. You know, the definition of being incomplete is that you're not whole. Right. And so and when split. you begin looking around, yeah. I just spent two months in the wilderness, and I look out at you know the largest uh, surface uh, fresh lake in the world called Lake Superior, and it lacks nothing. And I look at the trees that line the shore. It it lacks nothing, and I walk up the porcupine mountains. It lacks nothing. Why do I think that I lack something? Because I'm estranged from all those things. Right. I see them only as something that isn't me. That's right. And my question would be, are you sure of that? How so, sure of you are yourself? So what I hear you saying is that if someone wants to overcome or really see through that basic delusion of being separate, um then they require training. The, that mind requires training, which isn't a blissful yeah. experience or a state of peace, but really a, a kind of, would you call it a confrontation with, uh, with reality? I think... Uh, yeah. How would you describe training? Well, there are periods of nightmare. <laughs> right. And there's periods of bliss, and neither one are real. And I have to name it a nightmare for it to become a nightmare, and I have to name it bliss for it to become bliss. But was it? what is it before the names? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it's interesting that when I watch people walking down the street, which there's a lot of people walking down the street in Hamtramck. When you just greet them, it looks like you're pulling them out of some activity that's going on, uh, not, in, not in front of them, but Within where they mind, think it's yeah. happening inside of them. Right. Might be worried about what they're husband did this morning or right. whether their kids are good, whatever it happens to be yeah. and you just you just smile and say good morning and almost you know not all the time but most of the time people will look up and say good morning back to you and and often smile as well if you if you're smiling we're we're clinging to this self identity yeah. so i would suggest to people when you walk Begin to see everything. You don't have to name it. You don't have to do anything with it. Just let it be. Mm. And allow it to sort of uh, come into you. Right? Not, not uh, oh, wow, that's really dirty and filthy. Or, oh, I really like that. Right? Right? That's the whole thing, this this or that of the world. No, it's all all right. Mm. It's all going through the process. It's all evolving. And we don't have to do anything. Our problem is that we're always trying to do something. Right. In early Zen, I wanted to awaken. I was trying to awaken. Well, that's so counterproductive, it makes me laugh out loud. Right. We can't want things. So Lao Tzu, again, he saw him wanting. Maybe he had devoted his life for five years at that temple, and this was one step out of it, but it was a step that would prevent Yang Chu 
from really realizing he doesn't need anything. Right. He's got everything, just like the trees and Lake Superior right. and Porcupine Mountains right. and our next door neighbor and it, the fish that 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 we consumed. Yeah. It's all. It's just all part of, part and parcel of our consciousness. But we have to allow it to become. We call it fusing. Our individual consciousness fusing with the great cosmos. And the answer to any koan is the cosmos seeing itself. That's really beautiful, Sunan. Thank you. And I, what I hear you saying there is that our, our job, our work when we are doing meditation or our spiritual practice is not to let go of anything, but to actually open up to what is being given to us at all times, which is an undivided experience. So this idea of cutting, it's a very interesting conceptual framework. We come from, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian culture, which really does have a lot, you know, inherent in it around, you know, good and bad, black and white, things Mm -hmm. are divided. And the, the Zen or Sun or Chan conceptual framework coming out of Taoism really was coming from a, a Chinese, uh, in a particular period of China, where the conceptual framework was was heavily influenced by nature uh, as a religious tradition. As an alternative yeah, to, the, to something similar to the Judeo-Christian right. idea that we have, but they're 3,000 years ahead. To the idea of God's yeah. deciding on yeah, our behalf exactly. who's good and who's bad. Exactly. And, yeah. They they wanted when to make the rain come. They they were strict empiricists. Yeah. They wanted to to just experience things completely. Yeah. Not explain them. Right. Not try to figure them out. Right. Just completely allow them the freedom to be what they are. Yeah, the minute we're trying to figure things out and name things, we've really we've sort of taken the life out of it. I'm trying to remember um, something that I thought was very profound about the difference between uh, just Diana standing by itself, which was developed for years in India, and after meeting uh, Taoism in the form of this dark enigma learning, and fused together to make what what we call Zen, or Chinese called it Chan. So the, we have to just let go of Buddhism. And, and I'm not going to change to Chan because we've been 30 years here and people know Zen, but we have to grasp that this is a, this is a different thing that we're talking about. This is literally breaking down this self-identity. And that happens under typically under the guidance of someone who cares about you and is not willing to let you slide because they know you want more than that. So you're talking here about training as being a spiritual apprenticeship. I also, it's interesting, I think it also helps, you know, because I've been apprenticing in Zen for a long time and I, it's a, it's quite a, um, you know, it's quite a privilege and, and I, when we had Sunday service this past week, I was sharing with people that I think people often come to Buddhism or Zen in this case, thinking of it as a uh, almost a metaphysical practice, you know. And I was expressing that in my own experience, it's very similar. It's a very mechanical, uh, tangible practice, similar to carpentry or music. Empirical. In in the same way that you know, if I came to you to you know you you are skilled as a carpenter, and wanted to learn carpentry. There would be very specific ways to use the tools, say the chisels or the hammer, and you know what is a two by four. So there would be these very tangible lessons, and it wouldn't be metaphysical. You know, if you saw me using the chisel in a way that I was about to chop my finger off, you know, or a, you know, um, if I was using a circular saw in a way that might injure myself or somebody else, or just make a mess out of yeah. the work you're doing. Right. You don't know how to use it. You'd be able to step in as the teacher and say, hey, you know, no. And that would be because, you know, A, you'd been there, you'd been through that training. And B, it, it isn't metaphysical. It's very much related to the, the laws of cause and effect. 
And I think it's really interesting and, and great um, that in my own study and training with you, especially as you get older, you seem to be really bent on taking the practice of Zen and bringing it out of the metaphysical world and very much into the, the tangible world. And Yeah, well, let me just yeah. say about that. You're, the reason for that is that we have a conceptual framework that we, in the West, all grew up with. Yeah. And we have to, in a sense, deconstruct that. Right. Because it is based on an imaginary world right. that we come from. Right. And so this thing on earth is just temporary. Use it as you like. Right. This is just, it's a dream. And if you can't see it, like, I always wondered what God was. Yeah. Well, you can't describe anything that is tangible to a human being as God. So could you give us a tangible way, you know, you just offered a, a, a beautiful teaching a few minutes ago where you said, you know, when you go for a walk, fuse your your, consciousness. your consciousness into the landscape that you're walking through. Allow it to fuse into you. You don't have to do it. It happens when I you see. when you're when you're seeing rather than wrapped up inside your self-identity going, what am I going to do about this guy? Or where am I going tonight? Or, oh, I hate this thing I got to go do. So like, what you're describing there is in the same way that if you were trying to teach me how to do carpentry, you'd say, here's how you hold the hammer. What you're saying there is if you want to fuse your, your consciousness to, to you know, in, in the experience of walking, if you want to become one with where you're walking, you're uh, essentially having to notice when thoughts and feelings are arising that are stop worrying about them and let them let them where you are exactly and in fact they disappear very quickly your thoughts and feelings yeah yeah the tree in the front yard doesn't but it. it does eventually disappear so that's what to stick with is what's actually being presented in your visual landscape or your auditory well, you landscape. You can notice your thoughts and emotions. There's, I mean, you right. can't not. Right. But to go get caught up in them right. simply pulls you back into this. It's it's the language of self-identity. Well, that's, that is a, a good practice because, you know, I think it's more subtle than, say, holding a hammer. You know, you know, for example, if you say hold your elbow at 90 degrees... Every, you know, it's very straightforward type of thing to notice when you're not doing that. But I think that if we really examine our lives, we can see that most of the time we're not actually where we are. We're a bit disembodied. You know, we're doing one thing but thinking about something else. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is it's a very practical practice where you just notice that, oh, I'm chopping the carrot but I'm thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow or how my stocks you're are performing. You're seeing that that's what's going on. Yeah, and then you bring yourself back to the chopping of the carrot, how you're holding it. Well, knife. you might not even leave the chopping of the carrot. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're paying attention, the thoughts, my experience is the thoughts are still there, yeah. but they are they don't interfere like they once did. So they're I kind of that like way. background, they're a background yeah. uh, experience. Yeah. And so here, in the case of Yang Chu and Lao Tzu, we could say that Lao Tzu um, was seeing in a very practical way. You know, he's accusing his disciple of being selfish. And, um, and we could sort of notice that he's literally referring to, um, you know, he's not saying that he doesn't care about his teacher. Because that's where I took this story to, uh. to sort of be interesting. And that, you know, on the one hand, if you, you know, you could, Lao Tzu could, could uh, come away with, oh, wow, my disciple really cares about me. You know, isn't this wonderful? Thank you for being so devoted. And uh, Like helping. he needs somebody to care about him that well, way. Well, that's right. And, Give um, up all their duties. That's right. Well, what, what Lao Tzu, we can only make some assumptions about this and yeah. my assumption is that right. Yang Chu is really let's just say he imagine he could be 99% of the way right and so if he wants to be a hundred percent which clearly 
I think Lao Tzu recognized that this is who he's talking to. Right. He is not talking to somebody that first comes in the door. Right. Although here, if you come in the door of the Detroit Zen Center, I ask you to put your, I don't do it literally anymore, but I used to stand there and say, watch them put their shoes away, unencumbered by me, and watch how sloppy they did it in many cases. And then I'd say, would you watch me? Right. And then I would carefully take the shoes, put the laces inside, if there were laces in those days, seemed like the case. And then because I ask you to put them in a particular way, and then I would put them in very carefully. Because that is the activity of what I'm doing. The person that's being quick in that situation is trying to get to a better place, as if there's a better place than what you're doing at that very moment. That's really an important thing there, Sunim. You know, again, our Christian, Judeo-Christian conceptual framework is, you know, being scolded. It's, you know, there's a, a right way and a wrong way to put your shoes. And right from the beginning, I think I've seen people get really uh, rattled by that kind of teaching. But I think what you're saying there is really interesting, which is right from the very beginning, when people visit a place of Zen, they have to be, and they have to be shown right away, uh, this is a, this, there's nothing more important than what's right in front of you. In this case, it's how you put your shoes away. It's not that you're a bad person or that what you've done is, is right or wrong, but handling your shoes carefully is an opportunity to be, uh, to be completely present. And there is no better place. There is no heaven that you're going to get to next. This is it. And uh, I, I wonder if, you know, I, maybe I want this... to say something about okay, that because you brought up criticism. Yeah. The harsher the criticism from the teacher, the greater potential of the student. If they're paying no attention to you, they don't, they're literally recognizing after, you know, the way that you continue to put your shoes away or wash dishes and so forth, that they can't do much with you. Mm. But kind of low-level things like, could you make sure that you put the toilet seat down after you use the toilet? Right. In other words, these are so common that even if it irks somebody, it's hard to make an argument. Right. If you want something done a particular way. So fast forward to Hyang Chu. This is years later when right. he's learned how to put his shoes away and deal with the toilet, and he's running a temple. Right. So he's really a long way, if we can describe it that way, at least temporarily, on the path. And Lao Tzu knows what he's got. And so he's going to hit him right over the head, which, again, if you look at the the period of, of uh, the Tang dynasty and the great masters, they literally hit people. Right. Now, they hit them in a very appropriate situation. In many of those cases, it transformed those people. It moved right. them forward in their practice. Right. Uh, but they, you just can't do it to someone that, that, that is not ready for that. So you, you see that they're getting ready. Right. Right. You simply have to watch. You know, what you do matters right? Not what you think. That's very, very powerful. What you do matters, not what you think. Yeah, so then that is allows spiritual practice to be, you know, I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed by the idea of progressing spiritually, because when it is a metaphysical practice, it's almost out of your control. But if it's all about what and how you do things, what and how you live your, you know, how yeah. and you choose to live your life. Um, In my case, I gave up any hope of progress. Right. Well, then it's squarely within your own power to, you know, to behave in a way that is in line with, uh, with the great cosmos and your ability to. Well, that just means it. to me, um, move freely. Yeah. Move freely. Yeah, sit still freely. Mm. But your shoes always away comes freely. back to when you don't have any thought for yourself, 
which ought to be all the time. Mm. Because there's no thought that's going to help you. Maybe we'll give a little credibility to a thought that maybe I should take up spiritual practice. Mm. But if you don't take it up, the thought was useless. Mm. Just take it up. You start thinking about it. Oh, yeah, you know, they're getting up at 5 o'clock. No, no, that's not going to work. The self-identity can't deal with the harshness. If it, it has to start by dealing with the simplest of things. Put your shoes here. Come in. This is how you sit. Um, here's, you know, simple instructions in getting you started. And, and uh, you've got to spend years just learning how to sit. But usually people scream by that, thinking, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just, you know, willy-nilly it, do anything I want. And because I don't particularly think you have to sit absolutely still, but typically when you begin, when you're sitting still, your mind follows to some degree. Mm. The fact that somebody says, well, my mind seems to be really going crazy when I'm sitting in meditation... Your mind is doing that at all times. You finally slow down enough to see it. Yeah. And now you know the source of the problem. Everything comes from the mind. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sunam. I, um, I really appreciate, you know, being able to do this, this podcast with you again. And you had asked me to. <clears throat> Excuse me. He'd asked me to read a poem in uh, uh, kind of preparation or a preamble for the next podcast. And uh, so maybe I could do that now. So for the, this uh, poem, it was written by Meng Hao Zhan and was translated by David Hinton in the Mountain Poems of Ming Hao John. So this is a offering a preamble to the next podcast. And um, this book we're reading from uh, is essentially uh, a collection of Ming's uh, poem. And the translator here, David Hinton, uh, describes um, that this little book, this small book, resounds with the silence of Ming's truest poem, which was his entire life. Uh, and that uh, these poems um, are liberated from the limitations of human language and consciousness, and that Ming in his day-to-day -day life uh, pulsed with uh, dynamic freedom of the self-generating and harmonious cosmos. So a, a true Taoist poet, and I'm going to read here a poem entitled, Anchored Overnight on Thatch Hut River, and hearing old friends are staying at the East Forest Monastery, I now send along this poem. On this river skirting Thatch Hut Mountain, where Pine Gate Stream enters Tiger Creek, I hear you're passing the clear night there at East Forest Temple, exploring the joys of stillness. Here, uneasy doves roost on Chan branches. Mountain purity trembles in the stone mirror. A lonely lamp seems the awakened way. It lights a traveler's mind past all confusion. Mm -hmm.